This episode is brought to you by Sharp Objects on HBO. The AV Club hails the show as a true masterpiece. For your Emmy consideration in outstanding limited series and all other categories. Thank you for tuning in to Deadline's Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. And today's guest is producer and writer Alex Kurtzman. His credits are on such blockbuster films as J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, The Transformers, and Mission Impossible 3. But recently he's been taking CBS All Access's Star Trek franchise where no other Star Trek series has gone before with Star Trek Discovery and the upcoming New Generation spinoff, Picard. I'm joined by Deadline's Hero Nation editor, Jeff Boucher, for a very in-depth discussion with Kurtzman. The first question I have for you to to ask you is, uh, Deadline had, Dominic and Nelly sat down with um, some of the CBS Access people last year. Mm -hmm. And one of the executives had said something that at any given point in time, he wanted to make sure that Star Trek, Mm -hmm. some facet of Star Trek, was on the streaming service. Mm-hmm. And I know you're working on Picard. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I, my first question is, is that, is that goal scalable? Mm-hmm. Are, you, are, you, are you planning out other things? Do you think we'll see Spock mm-hmm. in his own series like Picard? Mm-hmm. Or I'm just, I'm just sure. you know, just curious about how things are spinning off. Yes, so uh, that was David Staff who, who made that comment. And absolutely, um, the plan is multiple shows. And there are multiple shows in development right now. The, the thing about the shows is you, you have to understand that it takes really a year from writing to finished product. It's sort of like animation because you got to factor in about seven months of CG work and then four months of, pre- especially if you're building sets for a new show for the first time, it's a massive endeavor. It's huge. It takes four months, four to five months to build the sets. So it's not like they're all going to be on the air at one time. You know, if, if we know that there's going to, if he wants, if David wants a show, um, always, I, I have to start planning two to three years out now. Oh, wow. You know, and that's what we're doing. So mm-hmm. the, the goal is not to have them be on top of each other, nor is it to rush anything out that's not ready. That's the biggest thing I can say is that, you know, when we did the first season of Discovery, we reached, we reached a point where we were realizing these effects are taking a long time. And what's going to happen if we hit that initial, the original date that they had announced, we're going to compromise the visual effects and they're going to be bad. And we went to the studio and we said, look, I know this messes up a lot of things for you, but the truth is we really need more time. And they said, okay. So it looks gorgeous, by the way. Thank you. We, thank Jeff you. and I were talking Absolutely. about it. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. It looks so cinematic. Like that brother, yeah. uh, the episode, yeah. the episode that I believe you're submitting. Yeah. I mean, just the beginning with the with the red, with the red petals. Yeah. And um, and then Spock's room, and then even a even a even a scene where they're going through light speed, and it's just yeah. it's just in the background. There's nothing. It, it it looks so prime for the big screen. Yeah, and the palette. I mean, the color palette. Yeah. How often do you see that in television where you're making cinematic choices like yeah. that? You know? Yeah, thank it's really you. Ambitious. I appreciate you guys noticing that. Yeah, we spend a lot of time. I mean, I, I will say that one of the. You know, I, I've said this many times, but my goal is to eliminate the line between movies and television. And I think one of the things I learned in in film and filmmaking from all the filmmakers I've worked with and then doing some of my own stuff is how to synchronize all the departments. So cinematography, um, costume design, production design, everybody has to be on the same exact page. So you understand exactly what we are trying to evoke and invoke for the audience. Um, you know, we we spend enormous amounts of time talking about color. 
and how color impacts your mood and whether you're even conscious of how the color is impacting your mood that as the story progresses to chart a color arc, you know, at the highs and the lows. And, you know, I go back to people like Storaro who worked on Last Emperor and came up with a whole color palette for the Emperor's journey from childhood all the way through, you know, his his uh, elder years. And those kinds of things are really inspiring. And I think as television becomes more cinematic, we can start applying those kinds of techniques. I noticed that on the bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, it's a different color mm-hmm. than from any other Star yep. Trek bridge. It's it's just perfect. It feels very rich. There's a hue of yellow. Yeah. It's it's dark, but it's not dark. Right. Uh, but it doesn't look like an iPod either. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to go into, and this is and, and this is where I'll say segue with with uh, with Jeff, is um, at the end of at the end of season two, it's. It's the the discovery is like a flying Dutchman. Mm-hmm. Um, you're breaking from canon. Yeah. And if you could expound on that earlier today when we were talking, when I said, Jeff, you, you have to come in. Um, <laughs> and he says, he, says, <laughs> he says, oh, and I've, I've known Roberto and Alex for, for quite some time. Correct me if I'm wrong. Roberto was the, was the, was the Trekkie. It's true. And it's true. It, so if you could talk about that, that yeah, Jeff, yeah. Jeff was, was yeah. mentioning that. Well, it's true. I mean, I, you know, I, I, it would be entirely disingenuous for me not to just sort of say I owe all of that to Bob um, because um, he really was the one who pushed us into the first film initially. And I, I, I had really liked Star Trek. My relationship to it was limited to uh, reruns of TOS, which I saw through my 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 friend's father when I was little, worked at JPL, and they would watch it together. So obviously, as a you know a rocket scientist, Star Trek was of great interest to that family. That's when I first found it, and then Wrath of Khan was kind of my big bang in terms of really feeling uh, a visceral experience with Trek. Um, but when we started doing the film, I began to fall in love with it. That was at my that was the beginning of a long phase of it. Um, but I really didn't feel ownership of it on, on any level then. I, I really felt like I was a participating member of a group in which everybody was playing a different instrument. And certain certain band members were playing louder than others. You know, Bob and Damon were playing louder than I was because they knew Trek much more deeply, much more thoroughly than I did. Um, JJ and I, I think, had a probably more similar interests because we were frankly, more Star Wars people, but now I've really swung in the other direction. <laughs> and so it's 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 interesting. Um, I think when we did the, the 2009 movie, the fact that everybody brought such different things to the table was really valuable to the franchise in ways that we weren't even that conscious of at the time. Yeah, because um, yeah, I, I could see it getting, if, if, uh, if you had a pure Trekkie do it, it gets a little too inside baseball or a right. little too insulated or maybe a little too precious. Or, right protective of the museum piece. Yeah. But if you bring in somebody that is completely uh, unfettered by tradition, right. then that doesn't go well, especially right. with your audience. Right. You know, so it always seemed to me that it was you and Bob and then JJ was kind of like in the middle, yeah. uh, kind of uh, letting the sensibilities fall where they may. I think JJ brought a, a really, really necessary objectivity to track at a time when it needed to be reinvented visually in a lot of ways that, yeah. you know, it, it had, a, it was, in, in a lot of ways where Trek was in the films before ours, you know, obviously fans have a lot to say about those films and they felt like it had fallen down. I, I don't know. I look back now and I feel like there was a lot of really good stuff there, too. Yeah. And it's just really, uneven. It was just uneven. It was uneven. And I think it, you know, you could feel it kind of running out of gas. And so back to your original question about 
what do I see for all these shows? I think part of what I, part of my job now is hiring writers with extremely different voices, but all, all of whom love Trek in very different ways. Each of these Trek shows has to have a singular identity. You, you can't feel that you're getting the same thing from any two shows. Um, they have to be different in tone. They have to be different in visual style, color palette, you know, storyline. Um, everything has to feel unique to those shows. And that's how I believe the franchise will grow. And the highest premium that we have to put on all of it is storytelling. It's just first and foremost, always storytelling. And in television now, you can stretch your legs over 10 or 13 hours, you know, or in the case of Discovery Season 2, 14 hours. Um, you can stretch your legs in a different way and get to know people in a, in a deeper way. And that's exciting. And I think that's something Trek fans love. So during the 80s, as a kid, you know, a, a superhero comic book movie would come out like Batman and they mm -hmm. would be like, well, Batman doesn't, he never does mass destruction. Or, right. You know, they were, they would always compare it to the source material sure. and refute it. Right. And that I think has gotten easier as the years have gone on to a certain degree. Uh, yes, because people don't read comics anymore. No, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I think it's gotten easier. I think you're right. And also just yeah. the volume of content. Also, I mm -hmm. think the, the directing and the special effects, the special effects got better and the directing got better. So mm -hmm. the, the acting got better. Mm -hmm. So the movies got better. Right. right. And, and, and this, this brings me to, so when you, when you do something like when Michael is, is, is the half, is the adopted mm -hmm. sister to Spock, do you get hate mail or, 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 you know? Well, it's interesting because we knew it was a huge gamble, but I will tell you that my experience on the 2009 film emboldened me in the, I think the bright ways in the sense that as we were breaking story on the 2009 film, what came up was, well, we have to, we have to set an alternate timeline. So all the events are unpredictable. And we knew that we wanted to destroy Vulcan and we knew we wanted to tie it to prime Spock. And so the only way the story could tell itself was with Leonard's blessing. So we went to Leonard and we pitched him the movie and he said, yes, you know, and we were so grateful and nobody, we, God, I can't tell you how, how often in, when we were breaking story, we're like, are we really going to blow up Vulcan? Like people are going to lose yeah. their minds. We're going to have such rebellion from the fans are going to hate us. And nobody said anything about it. In fact, Wow. I think because it was so necessary to the telling of the story and because the blessing of that storyline came from Leonard himself, yeah. the fans understood that we were actually trying to honor. So I think what that taught me was shake it up, but make sure you're staying true to what people need to know and feel about Star Trek. It's kind of like Nixon to China. I mean, uh, <laughs> Leonard Nimoy is the only person that could, could have blown Vulcan up. It's you really know. true. It's it really true. is. But you have to take bold swings. And so in the case of Michael, uh, making her Spock's half-sister was suddenly a big deal because obviously we knew the fans were going to go, what are you talking about? How is it possible that Spock's never mentioned her? To me, that was an amazing challenge. I was like, well, the answer to that is a full season of television. You know, the answer to that is not one episode. It is what happened between them? What's the nuance? How do they, how are they apart? How do they come back together? And, you know, I've said it many times, I'm a huge sucker for sibling stories. Mm -hmm. So the idea of getting to tell, they're, they're so unique and they're so specific. Sibling relationships are so specific. And you know each other in a way that nobody else in the world knows you and you share a common experience that no one else shares. And the idea that Spock would have chosen to keep his sister's identity secret, not only to protect her, but to protect the universe and the future of all mankind and humankind, um, 
felt like a great reason ultimately for him to have never said anything that synced up with Canon. And then there goes, you know, the task of many people in the room saying, who was Spock in TOS? Why did he smile at the beginning of those episodes? And how come he's not smiling now? And how do we sync up to all the things that happened in Canon that are, that fans still talk about? So that stuff is really a fun challenge, I think. Is that, is that a very long, that's gotta be a very long writer's meeting. It's no. well, the, the writer's meeting is, it, it's, a, it's a year in the room. I mean, it's not one conversation, it's many, and it's many back and forths because you're making so many decisions along the way that, you know, one wrong decision and you can spiral completely out of control and violate everything you've been setting up. And you don't shoot anything until you've got, you've, you've hammered out your 15, uh, or do you start production? No, we definitely, we're actually more ahead on season three than we've ever been. Um, on season two, we were flying by the seat of our pants. However, we knew exactly where we wanted to go from the beginning. And that's the biggest thing. Like it, I can fly by the seat of my pants if I know where I'm going. Cause I always know what I'm anchored to mm -hmm. when I don't know where the end game is. That's when you're in real trouble. You John Irving, a great author, uh, prayer for Owen media, yeah, uh, amazing. world yeah. according to art. He said the first thing he does with any book is he won't start until he types the last sentence. Interesting. And then he gets to it. Like right. with Garp, he, he typed yeah. in the world according to Garp, we're all terminal yeah. cases. And he goes, okay, now I know where I'm going. Otherwise I would wander in the desert. That's right. So that, that's kind of a fascinating. Oh, one. it's, and I get it completely. I mean, honestly, you know, I knew in my head and in my head and in my heart, I felt the goodbye scene between Michael and Spock from the beginning of the season. So knowing that moment and, and thinking a lot about what they needed to say to each other before I really understood how we were going to get there. I think the, the story and the structure of the season ended up organizing itself around that scene in a way. You know, the biggest challenge that I see on the horizon for you guys, and it's not necessarily a, um, I'm changing topics a little bit, but sure. uh, it's not necessarily a, a, a bad challenge, mm. but it is, is a challenge is that every iteration of Star Trek we've had has been named after a ship mm -hmm. or a generation. Mm -hmm. It's about a crew sure. and with Picard, it's one person and, mm -hmm. and, you, and there's never been a Star Trek that wasn't about a family. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you build a family out of one character title? Um, it's a great and necessary question. And it's something that has been baked into the DNA of Picard. Yeah. Um, yes, obviously, Patrick, it's Patrick. So we have an unbelievable cast. And, you know, the thing that I loved about the next gen cast is that you really could have focused any episode on any of them. Yeah. You know, and I, I would say the same about our cast now. They're, they're, it's such an incredibly brilliant group of actors that you could and they they're given such amazing things to do without spoiling anything that I, I think you will feel that. Yeah, you will feel that. Jonathan Frakes, was, I was talking to him mm -hmm. and he was he was talking about the esprit de corps of the of the Discovery crew and yeah. cast and how that yeah. reminds him of the way things used to be. And, yeah. Um, that's pretty special. And he, you could tell he really, really wanted to be there. He really wanted to get back. He wanted to yeah. do more, you know, he's a very special presence for all of us. I mean, obviously, you know, he's sort of the godfather yeah. and I think I've had really excellent, deep, thoughtful conversations with him about what next gen was for him and for the cast and what star trek is to people and well, you and he have so much in common because both of you were the outsiders who ended yeah, up being in, yeah. like directing and, yeah. and and leading yeah you know like he didn't yeah. know anything about star trek no and i you know in, in a way that's why i think i, I treasure my relationship with him because mm -hmm. he's a great barometer for what feels right or feels wrong right. you know and you guys were drafted you didn't enlist <laughs> exactly exactly it's interesting yeah what you were saying i'm sorry no no just that you know he's he's obviously directing picard now and um that's its own sort of amazing thing you know uh, when we 
when we announced, Patrick and I went on stage at, at uh, the Trek convention last year, last summer, and we announced him and surprised everybody. And I had this incredible moment afterwards, and I'll never forget, it was one of the great moments of my, of my career. Patrick and I went out on stage, which in and of itself was such a huge thing, yeah. just to stand behind him and watch everybody and watch him as that was going on. Yeah. And sort of the dawning realization in the crowd that, holy shit, Patrick is coming yeah. back, you know, was incredible. And we walked backstage and standing backstage um, was Jonathan and LeVar Burton. Oh. And the three of them saw each other and came together and came into a hug that lasted for two minutes. Oh, that's and funny. I just stood there watching them sort of like holding each other going, oh my God, we're back in this moment. And it's such a big moment and things had come full circle. And I felt very uh, honored and humbled to be in front of it because, you know, we we helped make it happen. And so it, I think that the beauty of of the people who have inherited Trek through all of the all its many iterations is that you must, you know, you must render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. It has to be carried on and everybody from the old generation should be incorporated into the new generation. There should always be a respect for both. And yet it has to forge new ground. Yeah. Always forge right. new ground. Right. Um so is Picard shooting now and mm -hmm. you're breaking your breaking story on on, on season three? Yes, yeah, so, so Picard is in the middle of shooting and um, we've broken the season and and um, it, the scripts are, I, I'm so happy with the scripts and um, we are on episode five of season three of Discovery. We're, we're, we're far along. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then everything shoots where up in? Well, Picard is space. here. Sp exactly, we shoot in space. We'd spare no expense when I said. <laughs> That's right. Are you and from space? No, I'm from Iowa. Yeah, I just work in space. I'm pointing up yeah. as in Canada. Yeah. Uh, yes, we shoot in Toronto, and the crew there is phenomenal, and it is a big family over there. And, and uh, both both productions will go on over there? Uh, uh, Picard well, Picard's and... here. Picard's okay. here in Los Angeles, and um, uh, Discovery's in, in Toronto, and future Trek shows, I believe, will be in Toronto. And then the animated series, what's, mm -hmm. uh, what do we know about that? We know a lot about that. Yeah. Um, so uh, the Hageman brothers are doing um, a show for Nickelodeon, mm -hmm. um, and that will be entirely different from Lower Decks, which Mike McMahon is doing for CBS All Access. And, you know, again, in the spirit of each of these shows has to feel very different. Um, you know, Mike, Mike came up uh, in, on the Rick and Morty writer's room. He yeah. ran the Rick and Morty uh, show for... Um, the last two year, a year or two. Um, and so the DNA of all that is there. But you may have seen that Mike um, wrote a series of tweets that ended up being published as the unofficial, is it eighth or ninth season? Eighth season of, of yeah. Next Gen. And um, it's in his bones. Yeah. It's just in his bones. And it's a love letter to Star Trek. Both of these shows are a love letter to Star Trek. They, 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 they're targeted at very different groups. Um, so Mike's show is really for kids, I would say 11 to 70 right, right, right. <laughs> and, uh, it is, you know, <laughs> what I love so much about the way Mike is doing, uh, is planning things is that what you, what would typically be the A story on any Star Trek episode is happening in the background, right? Like huge, crazy, crazy shit is going on in the background. And that's super peripheral to what to the story that you're actually focusing on. Um, and no show's ever really done that before. Yeah. I mean, Lower Decks to a degree did the the, the episode from Next Gen. Um, and then uh, I won't announce the name of the Nickelodeon show, but that's a really different show. That's a, a show that's for kids younger, um, 
full CG animation. It's going to be incredibly cinematic. We just started seeing boards this week. It looks like wow. You know, it's it's on par with Love, Death, and Robots in terms of um, beauty and wow. you know, lighting and cinema. Wow. And so wow. it's a it's a really different feel. Wow. And Nickelodeon has been wildly supportive, and I think very excited to bring a a new energy to TV. You know, in animation. Um, and then um, the Philippa. Mm -hmm. How far along is that in development? Is that still early? Uh, Eric and Bowie, who are two of our writers on uh, Discovery, uh, are, are breaking story on it right now. Um, and, and the plan is to shoot that the second we're done with uh, season three. Great. The, the uh, heritage of Star Trek uh, with animation is interesting because yeah. uh, the animated series in the 70s yep. brought the original crew back together. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Leonard, whose name always comes up a lot, uh, insisted that all the crew come back or else he wouldn't do it yes. you know because they wanted just him and, Sh and yep. Shatner but he's like no if you don't get everybody back I'm not doing it and William said there's other people there uh, no no he didn't say that <laughs> uh, I'm just joking this episode is brought to you by Sharp Objects on HBO the AV Club hails the show as a true masterpiece for your Emmy consideration and outstanding limited series and all other categories with that heritage and that sort of uh uh, example, do you expect it will this show focus on crew members we know and will they be voiced by the people or are they new, new characters? Um, it's mostly new. Um, there may be some that you know, okay. but um, it's mostly new. And, um, you know, the the animation is in an incredible, glorious renaissance moment right now. Yeah. You know, it's, it's you know, between Spider-Verse, which just blew everything open and everything Pixar has been doing yeah. for so very long. I think what I'm excited about in the world of animation is to try all these different things and to see what feels Trek. You know, um, that's the other thing. It, it's not just the the shows. We have the short Treks too. You know, we're doing sure. seven, six more of them. And those are great, especially the, yeah. the one with Doug. Was Thank really, you. Yeah, really yeah the, we were really proud of those and we're doing six more. Two of them are animated and the two that we're doing that are animated are unlike our two animated shows. So what I love about the short Treks is that they are... It's to me, it's an experiment ground, experimental training ground, and it also just a place to experiment with different things, directors we've never worked with before, uh, tones we've never tried before, um, and you know Michael Giacchino is doing one of the animated shorts, um, and Olatundasun Sanmi is doing another one of the animated shorts, and he's our main director on um, Discovery. And again, different animation styles, totally different tones, uh, aimed at kids, I would say, more than adults. Those two, uh -huh. um, but getting to sort of uh, you know I, it's pretty rare to me to have an experience that's more satisfying or gratifying than going to a pixar movie and some of those shorts are you oh. know master classes in how you can just pull rip tears out of people's eyes in five minutes or less you know wow. and it's really interesting to, to sort of look at how you get there you know how does this what are the buttons that they're so great at pushing and you know i i bow to them because i i've I've always helped, you know, I, I would say that the first five minutes of Up, it's, I, I, I mean, I, name one thing that's better in the universe than the first five minutes of Up, you know? There's nothing. There's nothing. Yeah. It's really and, pretty perfect. You'd really have to be perfect. a very cold, yeah. <laughs> you have to be dead. evil it person yeah. to not cry yeah. during the beginning so, of Up. Yeah, it's you know? true. So and I think, you know, the Toy Story 3 sequence with Sarah oh, Blocken yeah. song is, oh, is, my is God, just as good. It. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So evocative, you know? I, um, it's interesting because their approach is to not make cartoons for kids. They right. make animated right. films for everybody. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's such a, a subtle thing, but if you really firmly hold on to it, it's it's the secret of their success. It is, and I think like I remember watching Sesame Street with my mom uh, when I was little, and we used to watch it religiously, and she loved it as much as I did. And I think that taught me early on that if you can get the parents and the kids, right. and have you know some of the references will go over the kids' heads, but the parents will know exactly what it is, and vice versa. Sure, um, that's that's the sweet spot. Did they say the joke? Uh, the old joke at Disney was make not. Uh, was make it smart enough for kids and action-packed enough for adults. Right. Which yeah. is you know, yeah. opposite and, way and you'd expect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes those those are interchangeable in a way. Yeah. Jumping back to Brother, mm -hmm. um, how did you decide this is the episode I want to direct and will you will we see you direct again mm -hmm. um, in Picard or even in season three? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think part of my wanting to direct it was I, I knew we were shifting tones a bit in season two. Um, I wanted a more buoyant tone and I wanted to, we, I wanted to change some of the way we were shooting the show. Um, we switched to anamorphic film, uh, uh, digital, actually digital, but anamorphic lenses in the second, uh, in the second season. And I wanted to change the color palette. I wanted to leaven things in a way. Um, some of what I love uh, most about Star Trek, especially because we were going back to so many TOS touchstones. Um, and also what I loved most about what I learned by watching JJ make the 2009 film was th that buoyancy and delight is an, is an essential part of Trek. Um, it's part of why it's existed for so long. And I wanted to, you know, set the boat off the dock in the right way and hopefully raise the bar in terms of how we brought cinema to it. And then all the directors could end up, um, you know, using a lot of the techniques that we established in brother. Um, and so again, you know, we'll, we'll say things to directors like, um, your challenge is to shoot scenes so that you're never using the same shot twice, which means don't shoot coverage. Don't, don't shoot at regular coverage. Think about your shots and think about why the shots matter and what the what the shots are telling you. If you watch a Spielberg movie, you know, and you can watch any Spielberg movie a thousand times and still learn something new every time. What you see is the shot is there for a reason. It's telling a very specific part of the story. It carries you here. You know exactly where your eye is being drawn to. And the second that part of the story is over, the shot ends and the next piece of the story picks up in the next shot and takes you to the next piece of information. And there is not one accident. And that is really, really the difference between what film has been and television has been. And so now we're saying, okay, we're gonna bring that approach to television. Every director needs to come in with their A game, prepared, you know, know their shots on the day, know why the shots are there, know where the eye is going. We talk to the DPs all the time about, you know, the look that you're talking about, the look on the bridge. That is an incredibly meticulously crafted look where we say, okay, let's talk about where the light's coming from. Let's talk about high contrast. Please don't be afraid of the darks. I really love the darks. Um, it feels more cinematic when you lean into high contrast and yet don't be so dark that I can't see faces because when we lose the light in the actor's eyes, you lose half the performance. And so all of these things are very daily conversations that we're having with our directors and making sure that they are bringing those kinds of approaches to, yeah. to it. You know, one of the things that, that is part of the Star Trek DNA since the beginning is social messages and yeah, sort of, of political uh, uh, at least not, if, if not political commentary, at least political Absolutely. Allegory. Kind of context. Yeah, yeah allegory. Um, how does that fit into your conversations about story and and, and with the filmmakers and, and um, how does it fit into, have you backed off of anything? No, never. No, in fact, it's essential. Um, 
we always are looking to find the allegory, the modern allegory. How, you know, the part of why Trek has stayed relevant for so long is because it's always taken, it's been a mirror to yeah. the moment and it's taken whatever the moment is and it's reflected through some allegorical story. And um, we do that all the time. So we're constantly talking about what is the zeitgeist in the world? What are people wrestling with? Obviously Trek, uh, in some ways, I think is more relevant now than ever. Mm. And it's always been relevant, but it's more relevant now than ever because our world is so divided and so divisive. Mm -hmm. And the premise of the Federation is that somehow we've gotten past all of these things that divide us and we've figured out a way and it took a world war, a nuclear cataclysm for us to realize we better stop behaving the way we behave. We've nearly destroyed ourselves and our planet in the process. And uh, how are we gonna come together now? So. You know, Trek posits a future where we've moved past those things, where we've we're able to come together, but um, it allows us to tell modern stories in a in a, in a way that's more parable than uh, hitting you over the head with something obvious. Um, and we're always walking that line. So season three is all about that. Season two was about that to some degree too. Yeah. Uh, so will we? You think we'll see Spock again, or is it too soon? Um, too soon to to say anything. Well. We can't. I, I would. I would be remiss in saying you're going to see Spock again on Discovery because we've obviously jumped so far into the future that uh -huh. it wouldn't he's, make sense for him to he's be. On the yeah. yeah, but uh, we were lucky. I think that we got away with what we got away with, and ultimately the fans embraced the canonical connection between what we did in season two and and everything else that Spock has ever been in. But uh, the idea of bringing Ethan uh, back and Anson and Rebecca and that the, the Enterprise. I mean, we loved it so much that. To, to find a way to do that is definitely something we're thinking about a lot. And um, I remember talking to JJ when you guys, after the first one came out, and we were talking about fans, and he, yeah. he was saying, yeah, you know, I subscribe to Nacelles Monthly now, <laughs> <laughs> which is hysterical. That's the name of the the, the tube engines on the back yeah, of yeah. the Enterprise. They're <laughs> called Nacelles, which is awesome. Uh, what, for you, either personally or in context what you're do it uh, with your team. Uh, how are you with the fans now? How mm -hmm. are you with what they represent and that dialogue and that the tonality of their conversation? It's been a long journey and it continues to be one. Um, I, I, I can definitely start by saying that I have, this isn't just lip service. I, I actually, the fans point of view is has become necessary for me mm -hmm. um, because the fans have kept Trek alive for 53 years and the, the internet has now made it possible for me to know in real time how people are receiving our choices. And as you're writing, you can eh, subtly course correct, you know, there's a lot of opinion, right? I've come, I've sort of come to the realization that if you're at a 50-50 split, you're doing well. Yeah. It's when you're at 90-10 that you're in real trouble. You sure. know what I mean? Because the nature of Trek is such that people take opposite sides of it. They, they engage in a, a, a debate that I think is part of the vitality of Star Trek. So I get that. And I, I've come to under, I've come to see that for what it is as opposed to taking it personally. Um, That's wise. I, I, you know, because it's very easy to take personally. Um, I would say in general, I do feel like with a couple exceptions, and now I read everything, which is really new for me. I mean, really new for me. Uh, I stayed away from it for a long time. The, I would say that I would characterize Star Trek fans as being very generous of heart. Um, they are, they love what they love and they know why they love it and they're passionate about it, but they're not, I would say inherently mean. It doesn't mean that there's not snark online and all, but there's, there's a, 
there's a protect they're right to be protective of Star Trek. So I take that as an as an important ingredient in the stew. And oftentimes what will happen is, you know, we'll be writing, still writing the season. Like last season, we were still writing as stories were breaking, as people were responding to episodes. And you know, for the most part, the responses were very positive. But what I've started being able to do now is the things that are negative. I can process them as not being personal and as being, okay, why did, why is that resonating for me? Why is that note resonating for me? And what does it mean? And how can I, how can I address it now? Um, so it's been a long journey. I won't yeah. say it doesn't hurt when people don't like something, but I think that's part of it. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's interesting. Are you, are, because this show is very, and uh, from the, from the onset. Yeah. Uh, and I remember Brad talking about it at TCA female centric mm -hmm. have you is there any indication you've grown grown the fan base either made it younger yes. yeah or even yes. skew yes in more fact, female when i when i went to cbs and i said i think you have a universe here that is very underutilized um and a fan base that i think is hungry for a lot more and i walked them through the plan of what i saw for the next five to ten years of trek um Part of it was was kind of premised on the idea that it was going to take time. I, I, what I said was, don't expect us to put the first thing out and suddenly, you know, you have 100 million new fans. That's not going to happen. Um, Trek's been around for too long for that to happen. But what we do have is new generations. And what I can tell you is that Trek, in general, finds people when they're about between 9 and 12. It's never reached younger than that. It's never tried to. And to me, that's a hugely missed opportunity especially because what you're really trying to do is influence hearts and minds with really positive message, messages about who we can be as a species and as a people and what our future is. So why not start young, you know? And um, not for a cynical reason, not because, you know, hey, let's sell more toys, but because if you really want Star Trek to reach people, then you've got to start young, you know? Um, and this is where I guess the Star Wars influence on me really mattered because as a kid at four years old, I could imagine myself staring up at the twin sons of Tatooine mm -hmm. and wondering what my, what my life was. Trek didn't give me that same thing. It gave me Wesley Crusher. It gave me different characters. But again, those are older characters. It gave know? me, who's the green lady? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's not quite the same. So that's part of it. But we are, are we're definitely seeing just metric proof that there's the fan base is growing and it's growing younger. And, and, and yet we're keeping our current fans uh, and that's great. It's interesting. I was actually on a toy aisle just the other day and was looking at stuff because that's if you if you cover Hollywood, that's where you go to get story ideas. Huh, uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I noticed there was no Star Trek mm -hmm. toys. You know, yeah. I mean, there was Marvel, there was DC, sure. there was wrestling, there mm -hmm. was uh, you know, Indiana Jones was there, but Star, yep. Star Trek. Wow, was Indiana there. Jones was there. Yeah. There was an Indiana wow. Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. I was surprised. Now I think that's because Trek toys were gravely mismanaged when they were first put out into the world back in the late seven or late sixties, yeah, early seventies. And so they didn't make the mark that they needed to make. There's a, a documentary series on Netflix called the toys that made us. And it really walks you through exactly what a train wreck that the, the Trek toys were back in, back then. People just didn't know what to do with it to the point that, you know, when the show started getting popular, the toy company, I can't remember which toy company it was. Mego? Yeah. It was like Remco or something oh, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. They took an old like police helmet, that had like a siren on top and they just literally put a 
sticker that said Spock on the front. <laughs> and they made it the Spock helmet. And we were like, what is the Spock helmet? Yeah. Like, I see that thing. I thought it was a Spock Just look it up online. It's amazing. Yeah. But it, it's, a, it's a perfect testament to, you know, or like the Treculator, the Trek calculator, like, you know, because yeah. kids love math so much. You know, what? why? Why? Yeah. So I think part of it, too, is that they there was never there was never an output of shows like we're planning on doing that allowed for, and especially for younger generations that allowed toys to actually even be on shelves. So this is an example of a year or two from now when the animated shows come out and we have two more Star Trek shows on the air. Yeah. I'm really curious to see what's happening on those toy yeah, shows. That will be interesting. It's a long-term plan. Well, Michael Shabon, I was talking yeah. to him about the writer's room and he yeah. was talking about having Patrick in the writing mm -hmm. writer's room, which is unheard of yeah. in the history of Star Trek. Yeah. Um, how helpful was that? How important? Very. As it was essential, actually. Um, we spent a lot of time with Patrick in the writer's room. And, you know, what? Uh, he's incredibly brilliant, yeah. just as a human. Um, and very warm. Very warm. And obviously, he knows Jean-Luc Picard better than anybody. So, and, you know, he was really the one who, from, from the outset, said, I don't want to do this unless we're breaking new ground. I don't want to just play the character I played. Why come back to that? We did that already. And so, it's been a real... I would say really wonderful give and take in our collaboration with Patrick, where he very quickly came to trust that we were both going to do exactly what he said in taking Picard to a new place, but also, and he doesn't look at himself this way. We're reverent of him. You know, we, yeah. he's, he's, he's Patrick Stewart. And so when we're in a room with him, um, his opinion really matters to us and his happiness really matters to us. And ultimately, we couldn't do this show the way we're doing it if he wasn't excited about it and excited to play it. And um, we've, I think we found a story that honors everything that people love about the character, mm -hmm. but in ways that are not what you expect and yet become more and more familiar as the show goes. Mm -hmm. And that's what's exciting. He is become like the Leonard Nimoy yeah, figure and, and yeah. of integrity and, yes, he and has. cerebral sort mm -hmm. of class. Um, that, that this is kind of a bizarre question, but that one episode where we saw the whole life that he lived yeah. on that planet, which in, is inner light, one of the yeah. greatest. That's amazing. Yeah. Hours of TV I've ever seen. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, does that? I would think that would make somebody really tired. He's lived. This is his second lifetime that he's. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, he. Um, a lot has happened to Jean Luc Picard. Yeah, in the, in the intervening years, um, there's just there's been a lot going on, mm -hmm. and uh, he he's had to deal with some new things. He's had to deal with some old things, and both of those things kind of come colliding together. And um, he's made choices that he's not necessarily feeling great about, um, and yet I think the audience will understand exactly why he made them. Is this another um, sibling story? No. Okay. No, no sibling stories. All right. No. Let's check it. And the planet is the one that he. So I think you're referencing the inner light, Absolutely. which is which is an episode where the probe shows up to uh, the Enterprise and it makes a psychic connection with Picard and he lives. It's 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 a gorgeous story in its simplicity and its emotional simplicity. He he lives a whole other life, right, of another man who they all say, oh, you're I can't remember the name of the character. Um, I can't either. But uh, his consciousness goes into this guy who's like a, a man that works with his hands and he right. plays this wooden flute. It's where he learns to play the flute. And yeah. he, he, for, for years, like months and years, he's like, I'm John Luke Picard of the Enterprise. And they're like, okay. Right. <laughs> and, you know, eventually he just gives up, or not gives up, but he gives in to the, the life and leads the whole life and, and raises children. It, yeah. And then and lives in 
and then gets to the point in his life where they're launching the probe that he connected with, and then he goes back to. And and it has, it it has an additional layer, which which is that, you what you come to the reveal of the story and why the probe contacted him in the first place is that it, it's a species that died of, the, of planetary collapse a thousand years ago, and sort of the the collective memory of these people has been embedded in this probe and. It's been looking for somebody to leave the memories with, so it's very Trek in that way. And so, when he when it makes a connection with him, he he finds himself living their lives. But at the end, all the people who died around him over all the years he lived are standing in front of him in this beautiful scene, and they say, "You're you. We live on in you now. You get to carry us forward into the future." And you saw him. You know, he did, he couldn't play an instrument before the inner light, and then at the end of the episode, he wakes up and he has the ability to play the flute. And so you, it's yeah. just, it's so perfectly simple. It's a brilliant, brilliant episode. And a f- I mean, a fan favorite, if not the fan favorite of Next Gen, although everybody will yeah. tell you a different Next Gen episode that was their favorite. But I think it represented too, and Patrick and I were just talking about it the other day because it, there's no bridge story. There's no, mm-hmm. um, it's not, it doesn't, really doesn't play, take place on the ship. There's a B story where, they, where they're cutting back to him in his coma, but that's not the story. And, and yet it's remembered, as one of the greatest next gen episodes because it was pure character. Yeah. No no villain, no no, no gunfire. Yeah. Villain was the villain was time. The villain was circumstance and the villain was oblivion. You know, life. And it, it, you know, again, he the subtext is every moment matters. Now, will he and again, I understand if you can't answer this. Will he be called up by Federation again or is that kind of like a gimme in Picard or no, that not necessarily, that's not necessarily. Uh, well, now that the trailer's out there, I can tell you that obviously um, Marin Dungey's line, uh, she says, you know, why did you leave Starfleet Admiral? So clearly something happened to cause him to leave Starfleet. Um, and we will find out a lot more about what that, what happened. Excellent. Yeah. The Grapes of Wrath of Khan. That's the what Grapes the, of Wrath of Khan. That's what the, the whole wine thing, right? <laughs> exactly. The vineyard is the Grapes of the Wrath will, of Khan. I will spoil right now and say Khan is not in Picard. Okay. Yeah. Darn. <laughs> How about the Horda? Can we get a Horda? There's not a Horda yet. Okay. No. Yeah, no. Sorry. No. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>